Yeah, and the thing with Margaret River and, and how they are scored and, and where the judges are and where the surfers are, just they're so far away. But John's surfing looks like it's right in front of you. That's how big he surfs that wave. It's just... And John's not the only guy on tour with a big frame. Uh, but, man, he surfs that wave so expansively. Yeah, definitely going to be hard to beat. Welcome back to another week of The Drop. Danny's out again, so you're stuck with me. I'm going to be joined by Buck, of course, Stab's editor-in-chief, to discuss everything that happened in surfing this week. And we've got some interesting stories right now on Stab Premium, so we're going to discuss those. One of them is about the sudden rise of U.S. board riders clubs and how they somehow secured a permit for lowers, which they're one of the very few surfing events in the world that gets those. Um, another one is an inside story about what it was really like to be on the ultimate surfer. We had one of our writers talk like really in depth with a lot of the surfers in the tour and they gave us some crazy insights to basically spending three weeks in the desert with no phones and not much else to do other than sit around and think about your next wave. And last but not least, we're going to talk about whether or not the WSL having this mid-year cut is actually a good or bad thing. And I know we've talked a lot about this in the past few episodes, but we've got some facts and figures now that might actually surprise you, especially when you hear why so many people are against it. Um, yeah, this might flip the whole conversation on its head. And of course, we're going to talk about this at week's episode of Drive Through, where we get to go inside of Kelly Slater's garage and childhood home in Cocoa Beach. And after all that, Stace and I are going to come on to the Stab Cusp. We're going to talk about the upcoming Margaret River Pro. We're going to give some forecasting tips, some picks, and hopefully try to figure out what the hell is going to happen in this event. It's the last event before the mid-year cut, so I'm sure a lot more drama will unfold in that sense. But yeah, we've got a great episode for you. It'll just be tacked onto the back of the drop, so stay tuned for that. And for now, Buck is here to tell us all about This Week in Surfing. shirtless Mikey C. Hey Buck, how's it going? I'm very good. I'm very good. I've been inspired lately, an inspired man. Dangerous thing, many say. Ooh, what, what's inspired you? There was just a QS in my town. Wow, big news. What, what was the rating and uh, who was there? I think we were a 3,000, um, which means we're still allowed to say three-star. We have, I think the contract for that ends, we have until 2025 before we have to acknowledge that they got rid of the star system 10 years ago. So it was a three-star. Well, but you also um, own the ASP, so as far as I'm concerned, you can just keep that going in perpetuity. We can't, or we can just start making star contests and compete. <laughs> but yeah, we had a three-star. Uh, it was the last one of the European season, and it was, it was the most interesting three-star I've ever seen. Because I talked to some people that are in it and helping out, coaching some people and everything, and like to see, like think about any other contest at that level in the history of professional surfing. Nobody gave a fuck. Like, okay, yeah, you lost in the quarters. Who cares? There's another one in Brazil next week that you can go to if you want. For it to be, like, the last one and have that qualification system in the mix, like, people were – it was so intense. It was, like, intense energy around there, and I'd never seen that applied to a contest at that level before. So I was loving it, and I was also loving it because the waves were pretty shit. It was about 30-mile-per-hour wind, which it has continued to be, and so – the level of surfing gave me no excuse. They were surfing really good, and now I can't feel bad about myself when I have to go suit up and surf 30-mile-per-hour onshore waves. And 
I'm an inspired man. And didn't you say there was like some 50-year-old guy there who like couldn't even make it out or something? What, what was the story there? I believe that was the very first seat, yeah. Yeah, um, a gentleman named Tab Texter, 57-year-old QS warrior. I think his goal is to make a heat. He hasn't done it yet because what he did was in this like onshore windy day, he couldn't get out the back for like, they tried to be polite and like hold the heat for him and they got to the point where like, yo, we're gonna mess the whole schedule. Like we gotta start the heat. I'm sorry you're not out the back yet. And he kind of like did a brief walk of shame on the beach. He eventually got out there, but I don't think he got to his feet. So yeah, you can't get really worse than that. It's only better. And that's kind of, I've been trying to find the sweet spot between that and um, the level of serving that I actually won, which I think was won by Lucas Silvera. Brazilian surfer. Okay, got it. Um, now, there is one important question that you know we, we seemingly have to answer every week at this point, um, and it's where is Danny Johnson? Um, we know that he got kidnapped a little while back, and I'm concerned now. I'm, I'm wondering is he is he chasing the queue, but he just can't find it, or what's going on? What's his status update? Yeah, the the kidnapping thing that was just a little mix up. They apologized after three days, and it was all good. Uh, you know, Danny, he's forgive, forget type guy. Uh, he was visiting the zoo on Saturday with his family. He's got a lovely family and he fell into one of the exhibits. It wasn't a violent animal. It wasn't like a Harambe situation. Um, I believe it was a water, like a walrus type thing, but they're very docile, especially when they're captivated like that. And so he's still, we're working to get him out of there. But, uh, for now, yeah, he's in the walrus. What do they call those? It's not like display. It's like, they have another word for that, don't they? Uh, entrapment or uh, appropriation? Yeah, something. I don't know. He's he's there at the walruses for now though, and uh, we're we're our thoughts and prayers are with him. Wow, has he like assimilated? Did he take his shirt off and like make some makeshift tusks out of twigs, or how is he coping in there? Information has been slow and inconsistent, but as far as we know, it's going well. Okay. Well, that's all we need to know. Uh, Danny, I hope you and your new walrus family are thriving, and we hope to hear you back on the drop soon. But for now, uh, what happened this week, Buck? Top story. No phones, no fights, no hookups, no season two. What it was really like to be on the ultimate surfer. So we've covered this before, but RIP to US, uh, 2021 to 2021, not really in any of our hearts, but... uh, this piece, we talked to seven of the 14 cast members to get a feel for what the actual experience was like. Now that the show has been canceled and you know, long before the show was canceled, we could tell it wasn't something that was really going well or working. But nobody really knew what the experience was like for these people that are actually there doing it, subjecting themselves to that. And so it's a really interesting read. Basically, they're there from... Anywhere from three weeks to four weeks, people gave us different answers, but three to four weeks, about a month, where they weren't allowed to have phones, computers, uh, even books, which, if I'm being honest, that's probably the only thing about surf culture they got right, was uh, disallowing books. (laughs) And they were just there filming it, and this story has a lot of fascinating details, in my opinion, because it was such a weird time for surfing, such a weird thing, just reality TV, time surfing equals a mess. But one of the more fascinating details I'd like to start with is that they were only able to catch two to four waves per day. And like I said, three to four weeks there, that's pretty rough. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. Like you think back to the to the lifeguards and to the safety team or whatever that work at Kelly Slater Surf Ranch, and 
these are like some of the best surfers and watermen in the world. And not only have they been like stripped from their kind of natural environment being the ocean, and now they're living in a desert, but I don't even think most of them get to surf a wave every day. So they're just sitting there watching like rich schmucks butcher two foot tubes all day long and probably wanting to kill themselves. And then like, that's a whole other level, but being there to actually compete and you're still only getting two waves a day. Like, yeah, that's got to weigh on you mentally. Yeah. I mean, have you ever had that experience of being there and not being able to surf? Have you been for like a contest or anything or you just show up and surf guy? No. Yeah. So I've been there three times. Two of them. I did not surf. The first one was with Morgan when we, (laughs) the the crane. You didn't get to surf that time. (laughs) Almost. And then I went to, uh, the, founders cup is that what it was called yeah that first like actual event that they did so yeah and then i surfed it once um which was cool but i don't necessarily feel like i have to do it again but going out there and not surfing you feel like your soul dies a little bit i don't know if i'm being dramatic but i honestly think it's been some of the worst experiences of my life being there and not being able to surf like you just your skin dries up and you start to become like a lizard person like you're from mount shasta and you just like you can't even like even if you're at a surf contest you could a lot of times you get a wave down the beach but forget that you can't even jump in the water to cool off and it is just sickening so to be there for four weeks two to four waves a day okay that's not too bad but at the same time when you're competing to apparently become an ultimate surfer kind of kind of rude for knowing that they could just run that thing all day um more details to unpack in this story the whole casting process was really interesting. We got some people to speak to that, and it's probably standard practice in reality TV. First time we've really seen it in surfing, but contestants detailed like the you know you submit your casting thing, you get to the next level, they probably interview you, they probably start looking into you, and so one of the contestants, well, two actually, were opening up about how they pretty much dug up shitty things that happened in their lives or things that they knew would make them really uncomfortable and asking them on camera, still in casting about them and like kind of poking them to see what they, how they react just to see how much emotion they would show on camera when shit actually goes wrong on the show. And that was, uh, that was new. That was new. And it's one of those things where at the end of the day, like I said, it's probably standard practice, but at the end of the day, when you, look at what the show actually became it was like a little bit oh fuck you went through all that just to create this like pretty flat show from beginning to end yeah and i think i mean you hear from a lot of the people that were in the show say like yeah you know maybe more people recognize me on a day-to-day basis but it hasn't changed my life in any you know conceivable way so I get the allure of like wanting to go on a show like this, especially when you're thinking about, I think it was $100,000 for the winner and also three spots on in a CT event. But on the flip side, now you are going down in history as one of the few people that participated in the worst reality TV show in the history of surfing. So worth it? Yeah. Questionable, isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> I also, when they said that they had no phones, like obviously it's one thing to be somewhere without a phone for three weeks, somewhere pretty desolate without a phone for three weeks. But then I just get anxiety thinking about what my phone would look like when I came back to it. Like, I don't know about you, but if I were to tat, like I'd probably get about, I mean, granted I'm texting back and forth with these people. So maybe that doesn't count exactly, but yeah, let's say of like random text messages, I might get like 10 a day emails. I might get like 25 a day, like 
imagine coming back to that. You'd need like a month just to catch back up to life. I mean, maybe it's a good thing, though. Like you said, you don't really want to, by the end of it, they probably maybe have a sense that that, was, that didn't go well. So maybe they were just like, you know what? New phone, new everything, just kind of start fresh after that. So maybe it was just an opportunity for them to open up a new chapter. Yeah, well, fortunately, the WSL has a new reality show coming out soon. Hopefully this one does a bit better. We talked about it last week. I think it will. They actually dropped the trailer this week, which was, for me, a little underwhelming. Um, it seemed a little bit kind of softer and just squeaked clean a little bit than I would have wanted to see it. But that being said, I still have some faith. I still think this show could be great. So make or break, dropping in, what, almost just over a week now, pretty much. Yeah, I thought it was very nice of Cole Rothman to let them uh, use his This Is Living font for it. Um, <laughs> that was very giving of him. <laughs> you know, Hawaii, Ohana, Aloha, it's all the, all the words. Um but anyway, yeah, so this is a great story. I, I learned so much from it, actually. Uh, the writer, Jack Truesdale, did a really good job of reaching out to pretty much everybody that was on the show and finding all of the interesting morsels that were there, which, to be fair, like, you know, just you look at the title, No Phones, No Fights, No Hookups, it, there, there wasn't that much drama, and that's why the show ultimately failed, because basically it came down to you have a bunch of surfers who pretty much all of them previously knew each other. So it's not like these, like... You know, people who are complete strangers, and they're, most of them weren't single, so yeah, the opportunity of people hooking up was really limited, and I think that the show kind of was hoping for or relying on something like that to transpire, which they kind of tried to fake in one instance, it sounded like, from the story. So yeah, but it's a great, if you have care at all, if you want to hear what it was like inside of like a legit reality show, this is what it was like, and involving surfers, so it's pretty cool. Go give it a read and make or break the other one, the one that we think will be the savior. That goes next Friday, April 29th. So we'll be talking about that more in the future. I've got an interview with the showrunner teed up finally. So that will be another story on Sad Premium in, I'd say, the next week. So keep an eye out for that and uh, can only really get better, right? I would hope so. So anyway, WSL, here we go. Let's do it. Board Riders Clubs are new to the U.S., and they've already got one of the nation's most coveted event permits. Mikey, you're close to this one. Um, that's going to be, this is going to recur here, so pay close attention, folks, because Board Riders Clubs are here. Uh, the event permit we're talking about is for lowers, and actually starting, I think it's Thursday to Saturday, maybe, they have an event permit to run some heats at lowers, which is huge. I mean, when you think about it, this is the wave that is deciding the world champion, for 2021-2022 so even one of the most coveted permits in the world when you look at it, that like that's that's huge and basically board Irish clubs did not even exist in let's say 2015 i think because i think they started the first ones in 2016 so you don't have to go too far back to a point where they were non-existent and now they've already made it so far that they've got one of the nation's best waves in their pocket so wild ride well, let's just be clear. They were non-existent in the U.S. until 2015. They've been around in Australia for over 100 years, which is pretty wild, something I definitely learned from this story. But yeah, the fact that they're competing at lowers is a testament to, I'm not sure exactly what to attribute it to, um, political insights or <laughs> maybe some local string pulling. I don't know exactly how to how to 
make sense of it the fact that the world title and basically a bunch of uh grown men and also little kids but who you know may or may not be associated with the surfing industry but really are just having fun are getting to surf at like the premier wave in the continental u.s um and are there any other events at lowers other than the world title in this one that's a good question i don't know about this year i think usually they have like a surfing america one or usa surfing as it's called now which one thing that's already fascinating to me about this is that in Australia, like you said, there's so much history there, and I want to get into some other details in a minute because there's some good stuff to dig up. But in Australia, it's run like it's connected. It's connected to Surfing Australia, the board riders' battles. Like they kind of seem like they own and foster competitive surfing through and through. As far as I can tell, there's no connection between U.S. board riders and USA Surfing at the moment. Maybe it'll change as these get even more popular, but I found that interesting. Um, I think there's something there. Just USA surfing seems like such a mystery to me. And if it's a mystery to me, it's probably a mystery to a lot of people. And so I would do want to dig around there too, because what's going on. But anyway, Australia, you did mention the hundred year thing. So the surf lifesaving clubs are over a hundred years old. The board riding clubs are a bit different. And I learned that the longest running surf or board riding specific club is from Phillip Island. It was founded in 1963. And I, I looked at their website and I think that's kind of their first claim to fame is the we're the longest running one, 1963, blah, blah, blah. I think pretty much the second sentence, they go into this line about how their record for most cases of beer consumed in one weekend was 220. That's like, <laughs> if there's two things to know about us, it's, you know, we were, we're the longest running thing. There's a lot of history. And then the second one is 220 slabs of beer in uh, the late 1970s, I believe. And so I think that's fascinating. Um, yeah, well, it just goes to if, show that the little bit difference in culture between Australia and U.S. One is that in Australia, surfing is actually accepted as like a mainstream thing. It's something that people are proud of and that the government supports, which is not really a thing in the U.S. And also just Australians love a drink. I think that pretty much every board riders club is in some way based out of a local bar. Like they have their like, <laughs> their, I know they have their like life-saving club, but their life-saving club is typically like connected with a bar. It's like a bar is like part of the whole organization. Um, I could be wrong there. I, know, I think at Snapper, that's certainly the case. So yeah, it's just different cultures. And I think that uh, they're probably winning this war so far. Yeah, well, so the first ones in the US popped up in 2016. There was a board riders battle between Huntington Beach and, Seals, or, and Seal Beach. And honestly, I mean, we look at that number 220. I don't think that they're getting anywhere near that. Like I think, especially West Coast, you're more likely to see some of the like craftier IPAs, but you're like 12.3%. That's going to bump the number of the potential cases <laughs> down significantly. I'm going to say maybe 40 max. And even that seems like a long shot. So you're right. US has a long way to go. Um, but they're here uh, basically from 2016 from that one battle it seemed like it went really well and everybody was like hey we should do more of that and so it started sprouting up everywhere sprouting up so far as New Jersey where you've been participating in some board rider surf events huh? I have yeah I've done two I did one last year and I did one just like a week or two ago I think I told you that we've got our uh, division championship coming up over here in good old New Jersey yeah yeah wow so follow this thread, folks. It's going to come back up later. But Mikey has been participating in them. We'll get to that. 
seems like everybody has though. Like when I was finding some photos for this story, like I knew, you know, a lot of the more competitive surfers, like I saw photos of Ian Crane doing the San Clemente one and stuff like that. But I was just struck by this photo of Ryan Birch. Uh, he did compete growing up, but the fact that it's got Birch into competitive surfing in some form is like, says a lot to me, right? Like that's a guy that you really, really would not associate with competitive surfing. And to see a photo of him just with one of his crazy boards and a jersey, it's like, wow, like everybody seems to be loving this. So it's really cool. I've already been talking to people. I don't know how it worked because I live across the ocean, but I've already been talking to people in my neck of the the woods of New Jersey where I grew up to be like, yo, what's the deal? Like when, when is the team going to be? And I guess they're working behind the scenes trying to make sure they get it right before it starts. But I mean, I'd imagine five years from now, you'll see clubs up and down the country. Like Australia has 215 now. It would take a while for the U.S. to get there, but without a doubt, especially getting permits like this, it lowers. Like you're going to see these things everywhere. I bet it's going to become a big part of U.S. surf culture, and I think that's really cool. Oh, 100%. Like I obviously, you and I both, we competed all our lives, and I don't know about you, but I got super burnt out on it. But this whole team aspect of the thing brings back so much joy to competing. I think it's why you see somebody like Birch doing it who, you know, probably couldn't be caught dead in a jersey otherwise. But this team aspect of the whole thing and the community aspect is seriously the best, most fun thing I've done in such a long time. Like it is, it's pretty much my favorite, like past, like if I could do these every weekend, I would. It's like, there's so much excitement. There's so much like cheering and freaking lifting people up and yeah just trying to like get people go over there and like you're like frustrated at people but you don't want to like show it (laughs) it's it's great it's amazing it's because surfing such an individual endeavor for the most part which is good in some ways but it's really cool when something like this brings people together and are working toward a similar cause which in this case is getting to lower trestles yeah yeah well like i said i've already been talking to people from where i grew up it'll start there. I probably won't be on a team because I don't live there, but um, maybe one day I'll get there. I did hear like, because if you go to the U.S. Board Riders website, they have a thing to contact them to learn about how you can start a chapter, how you can get involved, and I'm sure this is going to be blowing up after this, but some of my friends have already been in the process and like, you know, just take some time. I think I got the sense that like, you just have to get it right, kind of like, don't just half-ass something that you're going to want to change 10 years from now because it doesn't really make sense. Like, what's the best way to break into regions, you know? Don't just say one town gets a team and then four towns get a team. Like, you, it is kind of complex to organize it all, I think. Um, I was honored to hear, actually, that it sounded like behind the scenes, one town near where I grew up didn't want to be on a ten, uh, the same team as my town, and I took that as a really sincere compliment. And so uh, thank you, Spring Lake. And... Uh, <laughs> I think they just need to sit down and have 200 cases of beer about it, and it'll all come out in the wash. that's all. That's the future. (laughs) (laughs) The WSL is a charity for surfers and fans. This is, I've been working on this for a while. I'm trying to get it so that when you watch the thing, you can do your taxes and say that somehow you're giving to a charity. Um... That's a work in progress. But for real, this is a story that you wrote, Mikey. This is something that's been coming up a lot lately. And the reason behind that is because there's a borderline mutiny at Bells where apparently half the tour said, hey, don't do this or we're going to boycott it. That's something. That's not every day. And so this has been a hot topic, a continuing topic. And Mikey, you've got more for us here. 
Yeah, so I uh, anybody who listens to this podcast knows my stance on the whole mid-year cut thing and who's right and who's wrong. But that's just like a feeling and everybody has feelings and opinions and they don't really mean that much in the end. Um, so I wanted to go and dig a little bit deeper and find out, one, why people are so adamant that the mid-year cut be abolished. And two, is there any sort of validity to those opinions based on some facts and figures? So we put out a secondary Instagram poll because remember we did the one last week where we asked whether people were for or against the mid-year cut. Basically, 56% of people were against it. Only 18% were for it. And whatever the other percent was left over were undecided. So I wanted to know what was like the main reason that people were opposed to the mid-year cut. So we put out an Instagram story and the options that we gave them are A, the surfers don't have enough time to prove themselves in just five events. B, the WSL is hijacking surfing. C, mental health and financial viability for surfers. Or D, another reason. And for another reason, we gave people a text box to kind of submit their answer. So as of now, surfers not having enough time to prove themselves has more than 50% of the vote. So I'm just going to take that as pretty much what the majority are feeling, that five events is not enough time to prove yourself on the CT. And, you know, obviously look at Joao Chianca as a potential person that you could lift up as an example of that. And I don't disagree with that, but I do disagree with the general premise. And here's why. I went back and looked at the 2010-2011 data about the mid-year cut. There were actually two years that they did it, and... It was obviously regarded as a failure after the fact. There was a whole Bobby incident. Everybody seemed to think it was a failure. Even the surfers now are saying, oh, it was a failure back then. Why are you doing it again? But if you look at the numbers, there were 14 surfers who fell off at the mid-year cut between 2010 and 2011. Of those 14 surfers, 13 of them never surfed another full year on the CT in their entire career. 14. So 13 out of 14, that's obviously, I don't know, what? 93, 94% of surfers did not requalify. The only surfer to requalify, and he might have actually just gotten a wild card because he was a former world champion, is CJ Hopgood. He's the only surfer of the 14 who ever surfed a full year on tour again. So let that sink in. Like, it's it's pretty crazy. And, you know, there, there may even be a few anomalies within that or whatever. Like, you had a few guys who were toward the end of their career already, like a... Uh, Corey Lopez or a Bobby Martinez. And so there's always going to be people that are falling off just as a result of that. But the fact that none of those other guys got back on tour is pretty telling that even though they didn't get to surf a full year, they probably were never destined for greatness at the like elite level of surfing anyway, because the cream always rises. You know what I mean? You can't keep a, a truly exceptional surfer off the tour for that long. So yeah, with that in mind, I'm, I'm thinking if that was a failure... You can't even fucking keep Jets and Andre off tour for that long. <laughs> That's very true. Um, so I'm thinking, like, if that is a failure, then what does a successful experiment look like, you know? how like And wh- why did they even... Well, I guess they couldn't have known those results, you know, when they decided to end it that nobody would ever get back on tour again. But it's just crazy to me. Like, how... If that's a failure, what is a success? I... That... I, it's- is that a mic drop or what? What? What are we doing here? <laughs> well, I guess it's kind of rhetorical. And then also, you have to look at the other side, which is, and we have to make clear that the mid-year cut back then is different from the mid-year cut now for one main reason, which is that back in 2010, 2011, 
new surfers were coming in to fill the spots of the surfers who'd fallen off tour. Um, this year, that's not the case. This year, the back half of the year is simply going to have fewer surfers on it. But back then, a few of the surfers who came onto the tour include Miguel Pupo, John Florence, and Gabriel Medina. So Medina came on, and his first half year on tour, he won two events. And he's obviously gone on to win three world titles. John has won two. And Miguel Pupo, this was actually a surprise to me, has actually surfed every single CT year between 2011 and 2022. I think there were a couple years where he may have fallen off and saved himself again on the QS. But yeah, every single one of those surfers has been on tour for the entire decade since they got on. So you actually see some success stories there. And obviously, surfers who were never really meant to be on the tour falling off. So I, yeah, to me, that system actually was working. And surfers may not have liked it for reasons that we can understand. Obviously, fewer surfers on tour means they don't get to keep their job as long. But at the end of the day, it, uh, it got us to a place where we could cut the tour down and it put us in a position where now we can look back and say, hey, that actually wasn't such a bad idea, even though people still seem to think it is. So hopefully sharing some of this information and, you know, I made several other arguments within the piece as well that I really hope people will read and, you know, maybe you'll hate it, maybe you'll disagree with all of it, or maybe it'll make you think a little bit differently about this whole major cut thing. Yeah, well, it's a great read. We also have been doing some digging behind the scenes, as the title suggests, the WSL's charity. We dug up, doing the dirty work, dug up some of the financial stuff, the financial reality of what it takes to run that business at the level that it's running. Um, and if you've ever been curious about that side of it, go read the article because we had to talk to a bunch of people for that, try to get those numbers, and it'll probably make you think differently about the WSL. So give that a read, and if you're tired of hearing about the WSL, go watch Drive Through Episode 7 um, because they made it to Florida. They, I wish they drove there. They did not. They flew. But how good was it seeing them in Florida? I mean, especially the waves that they surfed. I was... Is it just me? I was tripping on the level of surfing there that they were doing. Like I was, I did not expect to see them surf so well in those waves. What What do you think? Yeah, um, like they surfed this little beach break by Kelly's house. The first thing they did when they got to Florida was drive straight to Kelly's house and rip through his garage. And then Kelly's like, "Oh, let's go for a surf." So they went up the road and found some solid waves for Florida. I mean. Florida gets waves more often than people imagine, I think. But at the same time, it's still Florida. So when you get waves overhead, it's uh, it's always noteworthy. And yeah, they found this little beach break with air wind into the rights. Griffin went fucking crazy. Um, and then, yeah, later on, they surfed New Smyrna and found more fun waves. So yeah, it was it was a cool episode. But the the real treat for me was going into Kelly's garage, into his house as well. But did you see where his traction pads were on his boards back in the day. They were, I mean, the kick was basically in front of the front fin. And to be fair, I know we did a, a segment on sad pads on this podcast a few episodes ago. And to be fair, this wasn't really Kelly's fault because he was putting it as far back as the leash plug would allow, which also just makes me think like, man, there's so many things about a surfboard. Like until somebody went and told Al Merrick or every other shaper, like, hey, what if we actually put the the leash plug back a little bit? Then we could put our traction pad back and stand farther back on the board. Like, how was Kelly surfing so well back in those days? It doesn't make any sense to me. Those boards in general, like, first of all, there's something, like, crazy about seeing him. I feel like seeing Kelly in Florida like that, 
especially like up close, you could tell he has a great friendship with those guys and like really let them in and had some fun. But like seeing him in Florida, I, it just felt so different to me. And then seeing all his boards in that garage, like, and watching everybody trip, asking the same questions that you're asking now, like how in the fuck was he surfing that good on these things? Like imagine having that object in your hand and thinking like, this is going to, what what am I going to do on this? And then going back and seeing some of his surfing from back in the day, it's, that was a really cool part of it. I also love the scene where there's at a random Cocoa Beach restaurant throwing a wine cork at each other like that was just a very good heartwarming drive through <laughs> moment for me. But back to the surfing, I mean, I was, Griffin looked so damn sharp there. Like, I was mind blown. I love watching surfers in bad waves. I think it's so much more what most of us have to do deal with every day. So I think it's so much more relatable watching surfers in bad waves. But seeing is him it and though, then, when they surf like that? Like yeah, that I to me, not. like I, you kind of hang on to the idea of like, oh, I'm just not surfing like that because I'm surfing shitty waves. Mm, mm. And then they yeah. come and do it, and you're just like, oh, 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 all right. Yeah, and there's a side of that, but at the same time, like it just, like I said, with the QS in my town, like seeing what people can do in those waves, it's just like we're seeing a, a pro surfer, maybe just watching somebody at that level stoop to the level of bad waves, you know, Griffin, not too long ago, was on a boat in the middle of Indo for the reckless isolation trip I guess it was over a year now but still like that's more of a fitting environment for him so seeing him surf like this wind-torn beach break in Florida and just go nuts I was loving and then he got Kelly revved up I'm gonna say it was the best Kelly air I've seen in some time I mean you could hardly see it but but you saw it you saw it you saw just enough <laughs> just enough and I like a little bit of mystery so go and watch that it is great it's episode seven of nine, so only two more left. And episode seven was one of my personal favorites so far. Give it a watch. Go in Kelly's garage. Um, steal his car. Go to Cocoa Beach. Um, have a crisis. That's what I recommend. Do you think there's going to be a Sad Pads Instagram post that comes from this episode? We should send it to him. We should make sure that happens, actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We're on it. We're on it. Keep an eye out. All right, it is time for a surf sin, and the sinner is amongst us. You have been listening to him. Mikey C has sinned. He has sinned severely, and let's hear him out. I mean, I already know the story. What I want you to do now is just try to really just, I don't know, almost defend yourself. Oh, I got my defense. Go for it, because on paper... This looks really bad, Mikey. Okay, so as Buck mentioned, we recently had our local qualifier for the Board Riders Club National Champion at Lower Trestles. So we were in southern New Jersey, South Jersey Board Riders, what's up? And I surf for a team called Seven Mile Island. We are two towns combined on one island, which is, believe it or not, seven miles long. And it's Stone Harbor, where I'm from, and a Avalon, where... <laughs> where a lot of the team is from and um yeah we actually we hosted the event which was really cool and we have a little wave in avalon that gets fun from time to time and the waves actually happen to be really fun for the event waist to chest high offshore all day peaky perfect for competing and we came into the event a clear underdog like clear clear underdog because there's towns like ocean city who win pretty much every one of these events um there's 
yeah, just a few other towns as well that are really solid. They have a, a deep roster. And our roster is not very deep. Like we actually were missing, I think, three or four competitors in different age groups just because they weren't around. We didn't have them. So we did our best to make it into the top four, which is the final. And we, you know, we went through that preliminary round. We did our best and, and we made it, luckily. And then what they did was rather than having the final surfed between four full teams, they had each team select their top four surfers because they wanted to shorten it, the day wasn't very long, etc. So I was like, okay, wow, this is actually like, this changes the game entirely because no longer is it really about the depth of your team, but the girth. And we've got some girth on Seven Mile. Yeah, so uh, basically the our team was myself, um, Chris Eves, who is a school teacher, Brian Heron, who is, he does work with concrete and construction, and Seth Stafford, who a lot of people in this podcast who have been around for a while might know. He was a really, really renowned photographer. He shot for, I think, Transworld. And he was a staff photographer for a long time. And now he just lives back in New Jersey and he paints houses and runs an ice cream shop with Ryan Miller. So, uh, yeah, just a really eclectic group. None of us are obviously pro surfers or anything like that. So, But it is our home spot. And we wanted to take it to the other teams. So Ocean City got off to like a really good start. Uh, Matt Keenan, who people may or may not, may not know, he dropped a really good wave. And then their next guy went out and dropped a really good wave. And there, as the, as the story by Jake Howard on the site explains, there's this thing called a double whammy. And a double whammy is basically the ability to double the score of a wave. And only one surfer per team gets the double whammy. So you generally give it to your best surfer, the person you think you can get the highest score on that day. And it's really important to get a big double whammy score because mathematically speaking, it's essentially an extra person. So if you get a six, it doubles into a 12. If you get a nine, it doubles into an 18, which is like a huge score, obviously. So uh, Ocean City went out, they did their whammy and got a six, which is a solid enough score, but it also left a little bit of room. So yeah, we came into the, basically the first three guys on our team went, they got some solid scores like sixes and fives and whatnot. And it left me in a position where I needed a nine. And I knew that I paddled out and I sat at this one peak that had been inconsistent all day, but also that's where the best waves would come in when they came. So I had like 15 minutes or whatever. And I told myself, I'm just going to sit here until a wave that looks like a nine comes in. And I sat for maybe 12 minutes and around the three minute mark of the heat wave comes in. I go left. I blacked out, but somehow I got the score. I came in and we won. And it was like this incredible, one of the greatest sporting competitive moments of my life that I've personally like been a part of. Cause one, you're not just like winning it for yourself again. Like your team is like jumping up and down on the beach. Like I heard them yelling 10 seconds before the wave even got there and yelled the entire wave. It was like unbelievable. So it was this full underdog comeback story and nobody expected us to win and we did it and then we got invited to lowers and then I had to tell them that I can't go to lowers because I have a golfing weekend planned with my buddies for that week <laughs> so yeah I guess that's my sin is passing up empty lowers to go golfing okay yeah I mean when we talked about it, like every, I think part of the reason why we're going to see so many new clubs sprouting up is because of this lowers carrot, right? Being able to surf, there's no wave quite like it. I mean, it's, it is the most fun slash frustrating wave in the nation, I'd say. 
maybe Rincon is close, but I'd say in terms of like the amount of potential fun versus the amount of potential frustration you could face, like the opportunity to surf that wave with nobody out, it's just something that you could not take for granted. It is such a sin for golf, all for golf. I get you had that booked in advance. I get it. I get it. Um, that's a that's a very bad sin. And so, okay, but can I can I share a little bit of defense? On my behalf. Mm, no, we don't. No, 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 no. We don't. We don't give our listeners this right. No, no, no. <laughs> you can All not. right, fine. All right, here we go. What this comes down to is that double whammy wave. And you do a lot of video projects for Stab. Uh, I'm thinking a joyride right now. Next time you film a joyride, you have to claim the fuck out of a wave. It has to be a pretty good wave so as to be believable. <laughs> And you have to go all in on the claim, like a good wave, feeling it, claim it really hard. And then you have to post that as a single wave on Instagram. Do not, you're not allowed to say anything in the caption or the comments about any kind of irony here. Listeners will get it. Like they, maybe people will call it out in the comments. You're not allowed to reply to them and say, yep, you're right. You have to just post a wave, like a pretty well surfed wave (laughs) where you just claim it hard as hell. And, um, That'll make you think about what you've done here. Well, I think I already know the answer to this question. Uh, but are we talking about my Instagram or Stab? Oh, Stab. You know, Danny, he's in there in the, in the zoo entrapment, but he... Um, he always talks about wanting to prove the claims, and now all of our audience will see this. When's the next joyride you're doing? Um, well, here's the problem: is when I film joyrides, I usually do them in bunches. So I'll film like four at a time, and then they'll release over four to six months. And so I recently went and did that in California. So based on that, I wouldn't be able to do this for a while. But um, yeah, you'll have to remind me, I guess, next time I'm filming one. To do this and uh yeah i already feel oh, no, it's on it's on my list it's on my docket I'll, <laughs> I'll make sure i'll be following you up on this and i already feel so much like guilt and humiliation posting clips of myself on stab's instagram because it just i know what it looks like to the outside it's like oh this guy fucking runs stab's instagram and he just posts videos of himself like it's the fucking lamest thing in the world but it just so happens that i have like a board reviewing property which you know it is something that we offer on stab premium. So we have to promote it. So people go and watch it. And, uh, yeah, this is just bringing that to a whole new level. Yeah. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure people are going to love it. (laughs) I can't wait. I'm so excited. Wow. I wonder who the lucky board brand is going to be. I've got a, a a KT, a KT joyride coming up. That's like the next one that I have to test that I know that I have boards coming the brand that Imai Kalani Devault and Kai Lenny ride. So, Maybe, maybe they'll get the claim. I hope so. I can't wait to see it. I'm, I'm, I'm so excited. <laughs> oh, fuck. That really fucks me up. Okay. Thanks, Buck. Appreciate it. <laughs> You're welcome. Have a nice day, everybody. All right. Well, that is going to be the worst day of my life when I have to post that thing on Instagram. But let's not worry about that. It's not going to be for a few months, hopefully. Uh, in the meantime... 
We're gonna go straight back into WSL talk. Stace and I are coming on to do the stab cusp and we're gonna be talking about Margaret River. It's coming up in just a few days, believe it or not. I know Bell's just ended, but yeah, we're just ripping right through the Australian leg, which is great to see. Uh, we're gonna have some picks for you and we're gonna figure out who the hell is falling off of this mid-year cliff. So stab cusp, here we go. Mikey, you've been getting some ravenous dark tubes. Give it to me play by play. They've been especially dark the way I've been doing them because I end up going really deep underwater every time. I don't know if that's how you're supposed to do it. Either that or I just uh, ride the shoulder, as you can see on my Instagram today. I'll take that pocket ride. Uh, that's all-time firing. Like, Is it 10-degree water, though? What's the deal? No, well, uh, actually, I can't do that conversion in my head right now. The water is at a temperature where you need boots, gloves, and a hood. I tried to surf with gloves, without gloves, later in the day and couldn't do it. Lasted like five minutes, my hands were freezing. So yeah, it's still pretty properly cold, especially coming into springtime. But that being said, I'll take the cold water if we're gonna get swells like that back in New Jersey. That was like one of the best days I've ever surfed at home. Uh, you can actually see a little clip of the whole session on stab uh right now i think rob kelly and the numbskull boys posted an edit that pretty much shows just everybody getting drained off their head and me falling on a lot of waves so yeah that's what i've been up to and i actually saw some clips of you surfing stratty looking extremely fun also on a, on a new little board that might turn into a joyride at some point is that right definitely going to turn into a joyride session number one on the js zero hi-fi 2.0 Bit of a mouthful, but tell you what, probably the funnest first surf I've had on a joyride. Closely followed by the Mayhem Rad Ripper, but just how quickly it felt connected and knew everything about the board was like, I didn't really want to come in. And I haven't done that in a while, I don't think. Um, yeah, sick board so far. Definitely got a couple other things I want to try with it, but... We're so spoiled out here, like it was two to three feet, light offshore, nothing like what you were surfing. You said something to me that I'd never even considered before, being a spoiled, rotten little princess from the Gold Coast, that when you're paddling with gloves on, it's harder because there's the buoyancy from the rubber and it makes it harder to bite in. And that to me is just like, paddling's hard enough as it is to get into steep drops and late takeoffs and all the rest of it, but doing it in boots, gloves, and a hood, that just looks so challenging. Yeah, it just, it makes you tired really fast because you just need that much more strength to get your hand underwater. And yeah, it, it sounds silly, but it, it really is true because when I took my gloves off later in the day, the first reaction I had was, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. I can actually paddle. And then two minutes later, my hands were getting frostbite, so I had to come in and put them back on. But yeah, uh, gloves, you, you, have you ever donned the, the rubber mitts? Never. I've had, surfed in booties at Winky in the middle of August once, and I surfed for about 45 minutes. It was firing, though. That was the only reason I stayed out. I would have surfed for 15 minutes if it wasn't firing. <laughs> All right. Well, one of these days, we're going to get you over to Jersey for a real swell and uh, see what kind of man you are. Well, anyway, I think uh, people have heard us talk about ourselves surfing enough. Everybody probably wants to know what's going down in Margaret River this week. Obviously, we have the next CT starting up. So many things to talk about. There's the mid-year cut coming. This is the last event before, I think, um, what is it, 10 male surfers and 7 female surfers get the clip. 
And as far as we know, that's going forward. There's been no indication from the WSL or otherwise that that's being canceled as a result of the petition. So yeah, we're on. There's going to be a bit of a call and the event's starting soon. So where do you want to start? I want to start with, I bumped into the de facto leader, I guess you could call him, uh, Renato Hickel, uh, in calling out of the other day, the commissioner, well, former commissioner, deputy commissioner. I don't know what his tag is at the moment, but... um. Look, the reason I call him the de facto leader is because he's been in an admin position at the WSL for decades. You know, he used to be the head judge of this whole thing. So he's got probably the longest relationship with, I think, all the surfers and potentially the surfers' parents and WPS and, and everyone in between. And he was seemed in a good position after Bells. Obviously, there was a lot of talk. There was a lot of, you know, meetings and petitions and articles on various surf websites um but he was stoked that the surfers wanted to chat they had a chat everyone heard everyone out and they're they're moving forward um he started you know mentioning they're talking about wildcard decisions and stuff like that which is their next port of call once wa is done we'll know who's going to get those seasonal wildcards um he didn't give too much away on gabby um, but he did mention that Yago is obviously in a very strong position to get that wild card for the start of the 2023 season. Uh, and yeah, all things are a go. So that's, uh, that's where I'd like to start, which is good because I want to watch pro surfing. So yeah, I'm excited to hear that Margaret River sounds like it's going to get off to a cracking start after what was a, a shaky end to Bells. Yeah. Well on that too, we did get clarification. So Italo Ferreira got fined. For his outburst after losing that heat to Jack Robinson, and uh, I don't know what the fine was exactly, but yeah, it was a pretty funny situation. Obviously, Italo going into his uh, his famous porta potty or shower, whatever you want to call it, and this time coming out enraged, not elated, and he ended up slamming his board into a poster of Mick Fanning of all people, which felt a little bit indignant, if you ask me. Um, so he got fined for that. He will be surfing in Margaret River, but I think also a lot of people seem to hit you up and say that they wanted us to give our opinion about the Italo Jack heat. I know we talked about the, um, the Jordy Jacko thing, but yeah, we didn't talk about the other kind of contentious heat in that event, which was Italo and Jack. So do you have an opinion on that? When I watched it live, I had a pretty strong opinion that Italo got stitched up. Then I went back, I cooled down something Italo probably did also, I'd hope. And I watched all four waves again, and I just thought, you know what, that's just a close heat. I don't really think either surfer won or lost that heat. You could ask, you know, you could canvas the surface area, canvas the beach, ask a few people online, and I think you'd probably see the same thing. It was just one of those things. They both did some good surfing. No one did any, like, crazy great surfing. Um, Italo did more turns, but does that mean it's better? Not necessarily. His turns weren't bad, but they weren't great. Robbo had the bigger waves, and it's just one of those ones. So do I have an opinion on it? I certainly don't have a board-smashing kind of blow-up-y opinion about it. No. Do you? Uh, I do, but it's not about who won, because I feel similarly with you about that. But I find it so strange that in a scenario like that, like Italo being so sure, so certain that he deserved to win that heat, and I just wonder, like, how... A surfer can feel that way when they can't see every wave that's surfed like they obviously surf their own waves 
but you don't really know what a wave looks like to someone on the beach, you know, until you come in and watch it yourself. And then he would have watched Jack's last wave and, you know, he could have thought in his head like, oh, that wasn't a seven or whatever. But I don't know. It's just strange to me that somebody without having the context of being able to watch the entire heat has such a strong feeling that they won. Like, does that make sense to you? Like, I don't know. It definitely makes sense to me. And it is very interesting to observe when the cameras are there and you can see the scores coming in and you get to see the surfer's reaction, which we don't get to see that that often. Every single surfer feels the same way as Italo when the scores are coming in. They cannot believe they are being beaten. It's not possible that that could happen. However, how they choose to react to that is a completely different story. And I think, um, you know, Italo's reactions of late have been that of someone who seems to be operating on a different wavelength to the rest of us, which he obviously is. Um, but I'm with you and against you there on that one. Like every surfer, like a boxer, when they get to the end of the fight, they won. They always win. They never lose. But where I agree with you is it's a fool's game to try and judge a heat from the fins of the back of the wave. You cannot see what's going on on the front of the wave. You, you really shouldn't even bother. Um, and that's that's one thing from you know the coaching side of things is a lot of us were always instilling in surfers, you're never out of a heat. Just because a commentator reads out a nine of what you need, you don't know what that surfer did to get an eight. The judges could have juiced it a little bit. And so don't look at it from the back. Just surf as best you can at all at all times because the judges, they're not against little recorrections, which I'm all for. If they get the opportunity to recorrect an earlier score, they'll do it. So you've always just got to surf your best, which was what Robbo did on his wave. He surfed that wave as best he could. He knew he wasn't out of it. And the scores landed where they landed, so... Yeah, it's it's a very, very unique situation that Italo would carry on like that with a, a 14-point heat total. Like, you haven't comboed the other surfer. It does It does feel like there's been a bit of a shift in his, like, character and personality that he portrays outwardly, at least. Like, I've never known Italo, so I don't know what he's like in person or with his friends. But outwardly, he used to kind of be this, like, jovial happy to talk to everyone, people's champ sort of vibe. And now it seems like he's like, oh no, like I'm the top dog. Like I, I, I've heard from people on site that he kind of like, just kind of walks past everyone in the competitors area. Like, you know, is pretty serious. Is that kind of what you saw as well? I think I can take the unpopular opinion for this show. And my unpopular opinion in that it's Italo was more or less always like that. Um, Spent a number of years with him in the Billabong house there at off the wall in Hawaii. And, I don't think it's a bad thing um, to be like that. He's not there to make friends. He's there to make money and to win world titles. And I believe the reason why everyone, particularly I think the stab community in the people that would read stab and comment online and stuff like that, is that they loved Italo because they hated Gabby. Because Gabby was that person. And so Italo was the... He was sort of the, you know, the polar opposite, outwardly facing. But inwardly facing, he's always been a very quiet, very to-himself character. Um, And I wouldn't say, like, I wouldn't expect him to go out of his way and have a conversation with me 10 years ago, and I don't expect it now. Uh, There's a lot more gold on him now and a lot more tattoos. So I think outwardly facing, you can, it would be more than right for you to think that. But, like... I do think that Italo was very, very well hyped amongst being kind of like a surfer's surfer when I I would sort of watch him operate and go, him and Gabby are very similar. Very, very similar. Uh, It's just that Gabby went gold chains and tattoos first 
and Italo's sort of followed suit. And again, I don't think it's a bad thing. I don't expect him to have a chat with the security guard and a chat with the beach marshal and a fucking chat with me and a chat with whoever else. He's out there to go and surf a thousand waves and drink 2,000 Red Bulls and do 14 backflips and he's living his best life. So yeah, does he flag everyone? Yeah, he does. But does it, has that really ever been any different? Not, not really. He's never been down at the comp site slapping up everyone, high fives, and you know what I mean? He's never been that guy. All right. Why don't we start with the women? Because we've been talking about the guys a lot today. Uh, so I have some stats that you may or may not be interested in, but I do think it's worth sharing a few of these because they grant a broader context to the situation. So um, Margaret's has not been an event that anybody on the women's side has really locked down and taken as their own. So after Carissa went back-to-back in 2013 and 2014, the past seven champions have all been different. The only real trend that we've been seeing of late is that Tatiana Weston-Webb has been in the last three finals out there. If you count the one that ended up going to Uluwatu, she won Margaret's last year, so she's coming in as a defending champion, and she's the only goofy foot to win the event since the 90s. So it's been a, yeah, it's been a tough event for goofy footers, but Tati's kind of broken through that. Um, the other interesting thing is that the women have never run any heats at the box. And we know that Malia surfed it last year and she did a pretty darn good job. Uh, I've heard that Carissa and Sally have dabbled in the past. And I also heard that Molly Picklum has actually been out there this year. I think she was out there with Connor Coffin the other day. And apparently he was uh, calling her into some bombs, which is really cool to see. The current forecast, I mean... Uh, you would probably know better than I, but it it looks a little bit tricky. It doesn't look like it looks like there's not much swell when the conditions are good, and then the waves get big and the winds get pretty shit. Is that what you're seeing as well? It's really identical to Bell's, except Bell's didn't have the big storm in the middle of it. Um, it was just like small and clean, uh, which definitely looks like they could get some action underway. But I don't think it'll be iconic main break, and then. Yeah, either side of the storm looks very similar. Uh, our local insight over there, Jezza Forrest, who's going to give us some uh, some help later with our um, with our uh, betting picks. He mentioned to me, "Don't worry, it's autumn. Um, things change very very quickly over there." So I'm hoping that is the case because the days where there's swell, the wind just looks so foul. Uh, and almost sort of an unrunnable direction, really, for that wind. I think onshore margs looks fun in, in its moments, but not with the strength and direction that it is. So hopefully Jez is right, and um, these these little numbers will change it to be a bit more favourable for the long-term outlook. Yeah, well, that's the thing with the way that West Oz is situated. These storms that create the waves, obviously, they either go under Australia into australia or up the coast of australia it's the same swells that end up going to indo eventually and yeah you just have to get lucky and hope you have that one that goes off the coast because i think those are probably the best ones that have a bit more west in them but don't get so close that they're actually affecting the local winds which want to be offshore because it is autumn it looked so good on the first day like first day that everyone got there and started posting instagram clips and stuff you know i think anything that pops up in that swell range of sort of two to four meters uh, with that offshore wind, it just looks, you know, that's the reason why everyone heads over there. So, yeah, fingers crossed for a few more of those days. I guess it's good that those patterns are there. Going into Bells, which I think pretty much everyone got wrong, from Adam Robbo to me, got that forecast wrong. <laughs> um, I think 
you know, I mean, not not wrong, but just underhyped it a little bit. I think it, it over-delivered, which is what you want. You'd rather people under-hype it than it be good, which is, I think, what happened. But um, you have those trends and swells, and you can see that they probably are going to get something good out of it. Prior to that, Victoria had had like six months worth of east wind, which is just the absolute worst. So, yeah, it's good to see these patterns heading towards WA, and I think, you know, fingers crossed it comes together yeah obviously we'd love to see some heats run at the box i also wouldn't mind seeing some heats run at the main break if especially if it's big and we have guys like john john who of course we're gonna get into shortly um but yeah anything else on the women any people that you want to bring up that you see or feel anything particular about no i think that they definitely deserve to be out the box now um i think in the past there's been a little bit of hesitancy there and obviously the men are very keen to surf it so it's a hard one to get off them but like if you're surfing backdoor pipe well some of the men which which bloke isn't out there wanting to get tubed medina he'd surf i think gabby or gabby definitely complained i think jaddy complained once as well after he lost at like going into low tide box yeah, I'd complain too. Remember that pretty, wipeout? Pretty, yeah, that was, that, but he'll have a crack. He's out there. Yeah, Gabby had a whinge. Yeah, I, think, yeah, yeah. I think Wilco wasn't psyched one year, but like everyone's stoked to surf it. Like I think prior to that, the women, that you wouldn't even really see the women out there at all. Uh, now it's like, if they can surf pipe and backdoor the way they surf that, like the boxers will walk in the park uh, if they can get their positioning right. So, um, yeah. You would know. I got one wave out there and Malia said it was fun the other day and she said you would have surfed it and I just wrote back no I would not have I'm one and done (laughs) (laughs) that's it you just gotta tick the box Uh, it's all life is about just ticking the box tick the box Uh, so yeah I'd be stoked to see the women out there Molly Picklam would be amazing out there Um, I don't want to blow the names off any spots from the central coast but she's got a wave down there that resembles the box and and she spent some time out there with the Vaughan brothers and a, a few of the other local lads so mate, she's good to go if, if it runs out the box cool. for sure all right so going into the men the obvious name is john florence he won this event two years in a row and then he looked like he was on track to win it again last year before he injured himself so the question is can anybody beat john this year at margaret river i'm riding philippe toledo all the way to the bank uh, I've got a got a side bet going on with someone uh, that Phil will go deeper than John, and I'll ride that bet right into the podcast here. I just wow. can't. Obviously, John is the man out there, but if anyone can beat him, it's it's Philippe. And I would I would say that obviously John's angles and the way he surfs that wave are obviously no one's even coming close. I know a lot of guys on tour, even sneakily, were ordering ghosts in the last year or two trying to do their thing and it's just you just can't replicate that like john has been surfing like that his whole life um so it's a fool's game to try and match it you've got to try to do something unique and at your own brand of surfing that can match that and i think philippe's angles uh and uh you know his speed can keep up with john he obviously doesn't have the power uh but he's a shit hot surfer and i think if anyone can do it it's well based on the rankings and seeds going into this event it is actually Possible. I thought you were going to throw some stats at me. I don't want to hear fucking stats. I'm sick of these stats. Felipe, Kanoa, and John all make it through the second round. Felipe and John are going to be on the same side of the draw. Correct? Or is... Oh, no. Because it goes one, and then two and three go on the same side, and then four goes on the same side as one. Yes. Right? Yes. 
Okay, so, okay, scratch that. So John and Felipe could meet in the final this time around, which would be much more climactic than them meeting in the quarters or whatever round they met at Bells. So that's awesome, actually. That would be a really great final, and I'm just going to go against you right away. I uh, I went on to my little bet online AG. They dropped the heat draws and the event odds today, so I put $200 on John. It's my biggest bet that I've made, and I'm, uh, yeah, I'm holding steady. Him and Felipe, I think, are both paying plus 350 which basically means that whatever you bet, you would win 3.5x that if they win. So yeah, I'm going all in on John. So this will be a fun one for us. So that's where surf betting and, 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 and odds and stuff, you, you have 100% done the right thing. And I, I, if I could bet on pro surfing, I would have done the same thing. Uh, there is absolutely no way they should be priced the same. Uh, that's John at great value. So thank you, Bet Online AG. I hope you win money, Mikey, because you should at those numbers. Oh, sorry, correction. Felipe's plus four hundred, so he's a little bit cheaper than John, but still same ballpark. So yeah, I think if it, and these odds do change. So if you're listening to this podcast, you might want to get on it right away if you're using Bet Online AG because the more people that buy John at this price, the more that the price is going to go up. So get on it quick. That is short. Most of the Aussie bookies probably have John a little bit longer than that, but yeah, that's the fact that he's very similar to Philippe is is good value because that's obviously the lowest market you're going to get. He's the favorite. So good luck, Mikey. Thank you. I mean, and sorry, I know you hate stats, but like you got to listen to this. So Kelly Slater randomly has the highest heat total ever. In this CT event, he got a 19.5 against Glenn Hall in 2015. He had a 10 for that crazy barrel and a 9.5 backup. But John holds the next three, and he has five of the, five of the next six highest heat totals in the event's history. And you remember back in uh, 2017, I think four of his last five heats, he had a 19-plus point heat total. So the, the level of surfing he does out here, obviously we see it, but even statistically, numerically, he nobody comes even close to him. Yeah, and the thing with Margaret River and, and how they are scored and, and where the judges are and where the surfers are, just they're so far away. But John's surfing looks like it's right in front of you. That's how big he surfs that wave. It's just, you know. And he there's guys the same size as him on tour, like whether it be a Freestoner or a Geordie Smith, obviously Jack's not on tour anymore. But like Jack, uh, John's not the only guy on tour with a big frame. Uh, but, man, he surfs that wave so expansively. Yeah, definitely going to be hard to beat. Yeah, so another person that people are probably going to be interested to watch is Jack Robinson. Obviously, he's the local boy, and you put him out of the box, and I don't think there's anybody better. However, he's had four previous CTs at Market River, and he's never progressed past round four. And I actually think back to that year that he had that heat against Felipe at the box and just absolutely schooled him. Like, it in that heat... Jack looked like the best surfer in the world. Like it looked like he could just do anything he wanted on the wave. But then his next round was, you know, 300 meters across the channel over at main break. And he kind of just looked like another guy. Now, since then, Jack's gotten a lot bigger. He's gotten a lot better. He's on really good boards right now. So I definitely don't think he's the same surfer that he was back then. And I think he can hold his own at main break, but there could always be too that that level of like you know people say home court advantage but there's a bit of home court pressure as well and i put money on jack as well to win the event i think i put 25 dollars on him to win like 400 or something like that but i there's a part of me that just thinks that this event's going to be hard for him jack's style of surfing's very very um 
vertical at Margaret River. And I just think he's going to need to hit the green face a bit more than the lip if he's going to do any damage out there. Um, I watched him in the, in the trials and, and the main event over there in a few years in a row. And he's, his surfing has sort of matched what I think his results he's, he's had a couple of nights. Because a couple of those have been as a wild card. And he's obviously had to go through some big names like Philippe. Obviously, he did it pretty easily at the box. But this year, with a seed that is more in just the regular middle rounds, he'll just he'll probably surf against the surfer in round three with a very similar seed to him. Um, I'd like to think he can go a bit deeper in the draw, um, but if he wants to win the comp, he, he's going to have to show his power out on the open face and try to not burn too much speed off the bottom. Um, I think in previous years, he, he's probably gone up and down a little too much for my liking. Yeah, and speaking of that, that actually brings up a really, really interesting point, which is that there has not been a Goofy Foot winner, let alone a finalist at Margaret River, since Barton Lynch in 1990. Now, this event obviously hasn't been a CT for that entire time, so it's not like it's been 32 or 33 years or whatever, but yeah, just the fact that there hasn't been a Goofy Foot finalist since 1990 is wild, especially when you consider that the first four champions of the event were all Goofy Foots. And that obviously goes to show the way that the wave was being surfed differently back then, which is that most people were going left. Nowadays, uh, I don't have the exact stat, but I would say between 80 and 90% of the scores in this event come on the right between both the men and the women. And yeah, just going back to that, you know, the vertical approach doesn't maybe look as good out there and that's pretty much the Goofy Foot's bread and butter going backside. So maybe that has something to do with it. But yeah, this has been an incredibly, incredibly hard event for Goofy Foot's, um, which again, maybe points back to like, you know, the events on the front half of the tour, not exactly being even keel, but it is what it is. Here we are. So Owen Wright's going to have to uh, step up if he wants to get his spot back on tour. Uh, Owen and Ryan. And the thing is with Ryan, he surfs that wave so well. He has this incredible knowledge to pick the waves that close out before that end rock. And uh, he had some amazing heat totals out there last year. So I'd, I'd be expecting uh, my dark horse is uh, to be Ryan Callanan. I think uh, I think he's got a really good read on the place and he needs a big result. Um, he needs a massive result. So I'm, I'm hoping he can pull it off. Wow, I love it. Okay, well, then I'm going to go into my dark horse. My dark horse is Ezekiel Lau. He's uh, he's having a really rough tour, or he's having a really rough year on the tour this year. But this seems like the style of wave that he could really ignite on. I mean, it's basically Hawaii, right? Like the whole thing, the way it's set up and everything, um, it just is pretty much Sunset Beach. So he's kind of teetering on that cut line right now. He's in 21st place. He's tied with Luca Messinas, and he would be one of the first two people jumped if somebody were to come up like an Owen or a Ryan. But I think Zeke is just going to curb stomp people in this event. And I actually put a little bit of money on him to potentially win because I really think he could out here. Zeke, to me, looked really out of sorts at Bell, sort of warming up and stuff. And I, I think Margaret River could be the perfect spot for him to just find his rhythm again. Just because Bell's kind of offers you a few different styles of surfing, which I would say for a surfer like Zeke... It's actually a trap because he's act- Zeke has all the moves. He's got the airs, he's got the turns, he's incredible in the tube. But sometimes it looks like on the wave he's just sort of in two minds about what sort of approach he really wants to use. Whereas coming over to Margaret River, you're never really going to do an air on that first section. So it sort of takes that out, which leaves him with that one big opportunity to just sink the back foot in. And I reckon 
I reckon you're spot on with that call. I reckon he's going to do it. He's got to have that one-track mindset. I'm going to blow the lid off the lip on this wave a few times, and I reckon that's going to be his, his key to success for sure. So, yeah, I like your darky there, Mikey. But uh, it's an interesting one talking about uh, those two surfers um, because particularly for a surfer like Luca Messinas, this event, this cut, is massive for his chance to get into the 2024 Olympics. And the reason I say that is, if you stay on tour now, the worst you can get is 22nd by the end of the year. So your seed to start the following year will be so much better than if you fall off tour and then have to get on the QS. And then even if he finds himself back on tour again, he'll be back down the bottom. This is a great opportunity for all the surfers that have dreams of going to the Olympics to really make their mark here and now. And I know it sounds kind of ridiculous talking about it this far out, but it is just such an easier, clearer path to the Olympics if you make the cut in 2022. Well, the Olympians are going to be based off of the 2023 year-end results, right? And along with some other things. But like the C-tiers will come from the 2023 CT. So yeah, if you make the cut this year and you're from a nation that doesn't have any other surfers on the CT, you're... I don't want to say you're guaranteed a spot, but you're in a really, really good position to earn yourself a spot. Really, really good position because you're in a really good position to just make the cut in the first few events of the next season because you see it's going to be nice. You're not going to be coming up against your Johns and Italos and potentially any other kind of world title sort of surfer. You're just going to be surfing against guys that you came through the QS with or spent some time on tour with, so it's not going to be super daunting. You don't even necessarily need to make the cut next year. All you need to do is, you know, because the majority of the tour is Brazil, USA, and Australia, and they can only take two spots apiece, and there are 10 spots that come from the CT. So you just, I mean, obviously you're going to have a Jordy in there, you're going to have a Kanoa in there, so there's eight spots. That leaves two extra spots for these kind of more random, you know, less populated surfing nations to grab a spot. So you could even finish 27th on the tour in uh, 2023 and still find yourself in an Olympic spot. Very, very important because Olympics in a country like Peru, that that talks, that holds water. Whereas just saying you're on the world tour, that it's sort of like, yeah, cool, you, 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 you have a hobby that you make money out of. Whereas if you say to someone you're an Olympian in a country like that, I mean, he could set himself up for life. All right. Well, on that, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to go down the current cut line from 23rd down and dual olympian actually because i think he did go to tokyo yeah he did he did um anyway yes excuse me dual dual olympian that holds extra water (laughs) (laughs) all right so the current men's cut line i'm gonna go down and read these surfers and you're gonna tell me whether you think they can make the jump at margaret's okay all right mikey i'm not gonna go through the whole list with you i'm just gonna pick the one person who i think is going to mongrel up and get the job done i'm gonna say it's jacko baker on the men's side Jacko. Okay. Well, he's already above the cut line, so you might have to choose somebody else. Fucking hell. This is too hard. Um... <laughs> Do you want me to read you the list? Sure. Yeah, because everybody needs to hear it anyway. So we got Connor Coffin, Owen Wright, Frederico Marais, Leonardo, Jauchianka, Morgan Sibilic, David Silva, Jadson Andre, and Emai Kalani Devault. Oh, sorry. Ryan Callanan as well. I forgot he, yeah, he was down there because he was injured. I'll stick with Ryan. He, he probably needs to win the comp, but I'll, I'll, I'll stick with him. Ryan Callanan for my bolter. Big result. He needs probably a semi at the very least. 
Yeah. At least a second, I'm thinking. So go Callanan. Callanan. Okay, that's a huge call, but um, right on. So I feel like it's almost too like mainstream to say Joel Chianca, but I, I just kind of think it's Joel Chianca. Like, I know that you said that he's going to be the Ricardo Christie of this year's tour, but I just, he has so much fire in him. I actually, I like his first round heat. I think he could win that pretty easily. And I think he's just going to fight his way through it. So I'm going Jow. I like it. What about the women's? Who's coming from deep? I think uh, Sally Fitzgibbons is going to mongrel up and get the job done. She has to. She's good out there. And uh, I think she could be the one who comes across uh, and uh, gets the job done. No, Sally's out, but Gabrielle Bryan is going to make the jump for sure. It's not much of a jump. She's only one spot below the cut line, but I do not see her losing. Um, I, I'm surprised, I will say, to see Betty Lou down in 17th place. I really, really thought that... I mean, I know she has the talent. I just thought she would actually come and put it together a bit more in her rookie year, but it's been a rough one so far. She's got one semi. I guess if she got another semi, she could do it and this wave certainly suits her surfing so i guess she she's my dark horse bolter but my my real smart pick bolter is gabrielle bryan yeah good to see you stick your neck out there mikey look one semi out of five events for a rookie on tour is a fantastic showing in the women's so i i would hope that betty lou's keeping her chin up um the women's tour is um obviously someone of her talent is very doable for her to be as highly rated as she wants in the years to come, but your rookie year is so, so difficult, particularly this year. So I think for her to even have a third under her belt and a sniff at making a final and a win, hopefully can you know keep that fire alive for her going into what will probably be a very long challenger yeah. season for Good her. Good call. All right. Well, yeah, I'm actually, I'm just going to put all my, I'm going to put my weight behind her. I think she can do it. I think she will do it. She's going to the semis again and she's going to get her tour card. You're jumping off Gabriella Bryan and getting right behind... Uh, Betty Lou. Well, I still think Gabby's going to do it, but... You can only pick it's... one, mate. There's only 18 chicks on the whole tour. You can't pick the whole draw. You're picking one. <laughs> All right, well, you went, you went for the low man, Ryan. I'll go for the low woman, Betty Lou. Sweet. Perfect. Okay, so we didn't pick our women winners yet, though. Um, so I'm just going to... I'm going to do kind of the thing that I hate that people do, but I'm just going to say Carissa Moore. I think she's been right there all year, and she hasn't had that win. I think she's going to be pretty reeling after that final she had against Tyler Wright and I think that this wave suits her surfing even more so yeah I'm putting everything behind Chris I'm gonna on this go one. back to back Tyler Wright I think I've just gone back to back for the men and the women but I don't I don't I don't mind that I think <laughs> it didn't fare that well for you with Griffin Tyler looks gnarly um so yeah it's uh hers to lose I think Wow, interesting betting strategy. Just, yeah, go with the... There's actually... There hasn't been a back-to-back winner in a really long time on the men's or the women's tour. So maybe you're maybe you're due. Yep. All right. Well, what else do we got, Stacey? Do you... Uh, well, I, I know you already gave your unpopular opinion. So I guess I'm going to give mine and maybe we'll sign off with that because we've been on here for a little while. But I think at Margaret River main break... You should only be allowed to go left on your last wave of the heat. So, like, if you, you know, you need a score or whatever, and maybe you don't have priority, I think that's the only time that you should be allowed to go left out there. Otherwise, you have to face the rocks, you got to face the music, and you got to hit your little, your little bit slightly steeper wall and then negotiate the bricks. I don't want to see you do five cutbacks. 
You can find some steepness out there, though, if it's, like, the right direction and you can kind of take off on the other side of the peak. And I've seen Kano Igarashi get big scores first wave of the heat out there. So, yeah, he's going to definitely disagree with you. But, hey, if that's your unpopular opinion, that's your unpopular opinion. All right, so um, that's it. We got Marg's coming up. It'll be probably starting not on the first day of the waiting period, maybe the second. Forecast looks tricky, as we said, but hopefully it improves. And Stace and I will be back later on to discuss everything that happened. Um, And I'm going to be keeping track of all my betting throughout the event on the website. Chris Bins is going to be doing the daily comp reports, but I'm going to be basically just telling him who I bet on because he can't bet because he's actually like at the event. So I'm going to be letting him know who I bet on. You can see all those bets. You can follow me if you want or not. So far, I've been doing fairly well. I've come out on top of both the events that I've bet on. But uh, yeah, this event could easily go the other way. So uh, it's up to you guys. But for now, yeah, I got money on John to win. I got money on Jack to win. I got money on Zeke to win. And on the women's side, I've got money on Carissa and Tati to win. So I'm going to have some round one picks dropping soon on the website. But for now, yeah, you can find everything that you need on betonline.ig, another supporter of the podcast. Thank you. Good luck, Marky. And uh, always remember, you must account for variable change. Over and out. All right. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode, or should I say episodes, of the drop and the stab cusp. Uh, it was a big week in surfing, and there's an even bigger one to come. So, you know, next week we're going to have the uh, new WSL show, Make or Break, airing. Obviously, we're going to have Margaret starting. So there's a lot to look forward to, and we're going to talk about it all in next week's episode. So stay tuned. Hope you have a great week. And this has been The Drop slash Cut. Thank you.